This episode of Epicenter Bitcoin is brought to you by Shapeshift.io. With no account or signup required, it's the easiest way to buy and sell Litecoin, Dogecoin, Darkcoin, and other leading cryptocurrencies. Go to Shapeshift.io to instantly convert all coins and to discover the future of cryptocurrency exchanges. Hello, welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and startups driving decentralization and the global cryptocurrency revolution. My name is Sébastien Couture. And my name is Brian Fabian Crane. Uh, we're here today with two old old guests and old friends of ours. So uh, Sean, of course, everybody knows from uh, all the episodes and wonderful interviews she's done for Epicenter Bitcoin. And, and one of those interviews actually was with Preston, who is our, who is our second, or who's our guest today. Uh, Preston was a lawyer once upon a time, uh, and now he has fully subscribed to the the gospel of blockchain, not Bitcoin though, uh, <laughs> and and has started his own startup, which is a which is a very interesting project. Uh, I, I also quite an unusual project, I think. So we'll have a, a great chance today to talk about that. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure as always. Hi guys. So uh, to get started off, Sean, you had some announcements to make. Oh, yes. Um, well, I've just opened my office in the Isle of Man. So now I've um, got two offices, one uh, in the UK, one on the Isle of Man. And uh, later on this year, we'll be opening up in a couple of other offshore jurisdictions. And I'm also spending more and more time in, in Brussels, where I've co-founded the European Digital Currency and Blockchain Technologies Forum, which is a public policy platform um, focused heavily on uh, the European institutions, on the Parliament, the Commission, and all the other European institutions to um, help them uh, be better informed about all this crypto stuff. And that's what I'm doing. Cool. Awesome. Uh, congratulations. Uh, so you're not based in the Isle of Man now, are you? I'm you're spending still... more and more time there. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of divided now. I, I, I'm, I'm there um, quite a few days every month. And um, who knows? You know, I'm going to retire soon. So maybe I'll end up uh, <laughs> herding sheep or something. Yes, yes. Decentralized sheep. Oh, yes. Or, 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 <laughs> I mean, if you're in the Isle of Man, you probably be more likely to be like managing poker star servers than herding sheep right oh uh, no 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 i uh, uh i think i'm going for a quieter life not an ex not not nearly so exciting <laughs> life. my my cio days are well gone behind me now <laughs> so, so sean i also take it that means you you're going to save us from all those uh, evil regulations coming like uh, european uh, license or v, uh, the VAT and, and, and those things with the new uh, Brussels initiative, no? Uh, well, the, you know, the, the, the European legislators and policymakers are uh, being very pragmatic at the moment, but they are hungry to understand what um, Bitcoin and uh, digital currencies and indeed the blockchain is all about. Um, but they certainly at the moment are very much more... Um, measured in their approach than say um, uh, their uh, colleagues in New York who've got a very different approach uh, about which there'll be some new news quite soon um, but uh, the bit license uh, proposals version two going to come out soon but now in Europe things are much more relaxed the Isle of Man is a wonderful jurisdiction a very friendly jurisdiction for virtual currencies 
um, very welcoming and uh, very easy to do business in. Uh, so they'd like to do on the Isle of Man for uh, virtual currencies what they have done in the past for free gaming. So your your reference to Poker Stars wasn't uh, wasn't so far off. In fact, when Poker Stars I think started on the Isle of Man about ten years ago, um, I think there were three or four people, and now they employ over 200 people and i did read somewhere that they account for about four percent of the island's gdp now so wow, they hope that uh, to repeat you know to repeat that with uh, with, with with digital currencies yeah that is impressive so preston tell us uh why am i here <laughs> <laughs> tell us how did you how did you decide to leave uh leave your job you're well paid and uh, and well office job as a lawyer <laughs> well, my, my sexy job as a securitization yes. <laughs> lawyer waiting through waiting through piles of documents well it all started last year actually at bitcoin 2014 um sean was there when it when it all began because a, a self-described bitcoin millionaire was very annoyed with the bitcoin foundation he said he was going to issue a 100,000 pound bounty in bitcoin to the team or group of individuals who could design a piece of software that could replace the Bitcoin Foundation and also promote development of the core protocol. So a bunch of the sort of Ethereum community enthusiasts gathered up in a Skype group and, you know, it's like, wow, a hundred grand, very money, wow. <laughs> and such that, currency. That, that's two it's hours real, of your time as a lawyer, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I, the problem is I used to do all that stuff for free, which was, uh, which was not very remunerative, but understandably. So we got together and, uh, and three of us, uh, a chap who then went by the name Dennis McKinnon, uh, Casey Coleman, who's currently our CEO and myself, uh, started batting some ideas around in a Google Doc. And then it occurred to us we could actually do it, um, the three of us with our respective skill sets. So we didn't sleep for a month and we worked and worked and worked. And then eventually we came up with a prototype, RS 0.1, which was built on Ethereum and designed to replicate the functions of a trade association on a blockchain. Um, and what it could do is some pretty interesting stuff. It had a series of smart contracts, about 30 or 40 of them, which governed how users were able to interact with the various databases they represented. Those smart contracts could be changed over time because of a kernel, which held the logic which allowed you to update the entire system. So the first contract on the sort of cascading branch of contracts going all the way down enabled you to make a state change in any of the subcontracts. And then it occurred to us that you could actually do that with a blockchain. Um, and that's really where, where Eris started, this idea that if you, if you take all of your blockchain logic, you remove it from being hard-coded in the blockchain and you put it into a script in the Genesis block, you can have a blockchain which acts a lot more like a regular piece of software in a regular database than it does like Bitcoin. And so that, that's how all that got started. Three days after we uh, wrote our white paper, a, a very nice guy named Sean Park, who also happens to be a VC, sent us an email and said, uh, I'd like to meet you guys. And, uh, and we started a relationship with that firm then, Anthemus Group, and, uh, and we've had one with them ever since. And, so, and, and the company's on the move and growing and, uh, and building cool shit. So that's, you know, that's how it started. It was a total accident. Uh, my law firm was very good about it, actually. They, they represented us on the deal. Um, so, so big, big thanks to Norton Rose Fulbright in London for that. And, um, no, they, yeah, I mean, I, I cannot imagine many law firms being that charitable to a junior associate. Hey guys, I'd like to quit my job. Can you, 
can you keep me employed while I while I you know, set about the business of quitting? <laughs> and um, which which is exactly what they did. So, but yeah, and it's that that's how it all started. And credit credit to to you and 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 the other two for having. Um, unfortunately you didn't win this this prize but um it was so impressive that they um uh, second prize was created uh, specifically to 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 uh, reward you guys for the fantastic offer uh, uh, fantastic uh, proposal that you came up with so um and we were really was- grateful for that yeah that 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 merit saying we were very grateful for that that was very helpful to us um so yeah and that, that's how it all started so where where are you guys based we're notionally based in London, um, although it's in typical fashion, it's distributed. We've got two guys in, uh, in Guelph, Ontario, which seems to be a sort of hotbed of smart contract activity. A lot of Ethereum <laughs> people come from there. And, um, and uh, one guy in, in Sweden in, in a farm about five hours outside of, of Stockholm. Um, Casey, our CEO, is in Amsterdam, and then I'm in, in our busy London headquarters by myself. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, so we're, we're spread out all over the place, and which, you know, we all met on the internet, and we all met um, talking about blockchain stuff over Skype, really, and, and doing projects and collaborative work with each other remotely. And so we've started out with that as, as the model, because it doesn't make sense to move us all into one room. And when the team is this big, you can do collaborative work. Um, or rather, when the team is this small, collaborative work is fairly easy to accomplish. So, so let's talk about this. Um, so, Aris Industries is. So, I, I mean, I, I used to be a developer and sort of UX designer. I used to be quite involved with a lot of web projects, uh, also as a project manager. And to me, this looks. I mean, this looks a lot like the same sort of software stack that you we see in the i guess traditional world only it's distributed um i i think you've described it as node.js for the peer-to-peer for peer-to-peer technology um can you sort of give us an overview of what aris industries is uh is uh, proposing i mean so an interview of basically what we're proposing is a software stack that uses a blockchain in a real-world context, um, because I think a lot of people in, in the decentralized computing space or distributed computing space, particularly blockchain, um, have tried to create a sort of mirror universe, which is designed to replicate the functions of, of whatever institution or organization that they work with with the real world without necessarily needing to interact with the real world at all. It's the idea, for example, that Bitcoin can, can replicate a banking system. Our hypothesis is somewhat different. It's that Bitcoin can't replicate a banking system because a banking system is dependent on legal relationships, um, legal constitution of assets, and human oversight making strategic decisions. So what we said is, what if instead of trying to replicate the system entirely automatically, you use these tools which can automate data-driven relationships, plug them in to these organizations, have human administration to a degree, and realize efficiencies um, when you when you deploy these these particular databases in economies of scale, so it's the difference between with Bitcoin attempting to do something where you're getting financial inclusion by having access to Bitcoin in a developing country. Instead, we would say, well, that kind of would look and feel like a credit union in in let's say Ghana or someplace like that. But if you actually had a real bank deploying one of these databases and doing it at very low cost, you would have an actual credit union in that country instead of something that just kind of looked and acted and mimicked. And the qualitative difference is significant because when you're dealing with something like Bitcoin, you're relying on 
the network effect, which monetizes the token in order to move value around. Whereas when you're dealing with something like a banking institution, you're looking at, you're looking at actual obligations, whether that be fiat or a, or a debt obligation or something else, which are enforceable against someone, which have a real world and legal nexus. And that, from our perspective, is very important because most of mainstream finance deals in these kinds of abstractions. Um, it deals in debts. It deals in obligations. It deals in rights. And these are not things you can pin down. They only really adopt a, a, an existence and a character when they are presented to a court for enforcement. And that's what makes people follow them. So on the one hand, we recognize that this is substantially at variance with the, the cryptocurrency model, which says that value is going to vest in a token because the token, because everybody wants it and, and therefore you can use it for certain things. We say value vests in the obligation. And so it's, it's kind of pulling cryptocurrency down to earth a little bit. But the blockchain data structure is something which you can use in order to transfer, record, and manage those obligations extremely efficiently. So, you know, and that, that applies to all kinds of other things as well, whether you're looking at a purely utility task, like, for example, version control. Um, you know, do you really need to decentralize completely version control? Or, you know, if you just want a private GitHub repo, can you just set up a network with five nodes in your startup? And then each person in the startup will run a node, and then they'll have an extra hard drive, and you won't need to pay GitHub every month, and so on and so forth. So the idea is that we're not trying to recreate a new order um, that exists outside of everything that is. We're trying to create something that, that works in the way that the real world works, in the sense that you have applications, they have developers, those developers improve them and are responsible for their management and maintenance. Can we make developers' lives easier by, in, by putting in a blockchain database or any other kind of consensus database for that matter? Um, and so that, that's the core hypothesis of the company. So it's interesting that... Um well, in Bitcoin, it seems the, the notion is very, well, the notion is very central that uh, it's about decentralization, right? And it's about uh, disintermediating big players, big companies, etc. And this seems to be a completely different um, philosophy and interpretation of, of Bitcoin and the blockchain that's going on here, which is that it's just something that provides more efficiency, you know, it, it lowers costs. It, you know, helps business. And then I guess, you know, in, in the way that lowering costs uh, helps, you know, the third world, so developing countries in that way, you know, it, it benefits them, but it's not sort of through this revolutionary alternative system that we are building that will displace what we have. Well, it, it depends on who you're disintermediating, right? So I think Bitcoin, we look at Bitcoin and we see the core innovation, not the currency, not anything political. We look at it and say, this is a clearing and settlement system sort of merged into one, um, which is because there's no clearing, there's no central counterparty. So it's really just peer-to-peer -peer settlement. And for that particular brand of settlement, it is really super efficient. But why is it efficient and why is it cheap? The answer is, you know, if you, but for the fact that you're having token generation and thus you need mining and other kinds of things to protect the chain. Um, in terms of the pure settlement function, um, Bitcoin is, how to describe it? Bitcoin isn't disintermediating a bank. It's disintermediating the labor of a bank, the overheads of a bank, the costs of the bank. And so you have those costs arising somewhere else in the form of database management. So we said, okay, well, what happens if you take another clearing and settlement system any, any, take any one you like, and then you script in the functionality that, that that clearing and settlement system carries out. 
you put an administrator in charge. And then because you've set all of your input and output parameters in advance, you know what's coming in is going to give rise to a certain result with a very high degree of certainty. And then you say, well, if you're a bank, you want to disintermediate your costs. Um, if you're someone who doesn't like banks, you want to disintermediate right. bank. So different users are going to have different requirements and there will be different design parameters. But we think that for both the bank and the people who want to disintermediate them, each of them should have the option to set up their own system. And so what Eris, or rather what our blockchain design, which is a, a very heavily modified derivative of Jeffrey Wilkes' Go client for the Ethereum protocol, what that's designed to do is give people the ability to select the parameters that they want for the application that they want. So if you want, you can go and do a Bitcoin clone, you know, totally distributed, mining, whatever, SHA-256 you know, SHA proof of work, go for it, all yours. Or in the alternative, you can say, well, you know, I'm running a clearing system for, or I'm running a government accounting system in a, in a, rural, in a rural area in the middle of West Africa, and I want to keep track of where money is going to reduce corruption then I'll deploy this blockchain and I'll know that anyone who has a particular balance, which they redeem through a gateway, which I lock down and trust very heavily, um, you know, I'll make sure that there's no leakage and there's less. That, that's not my idea, by the way. That's Zachary Caceres of the Startup Cities Institute in Guatemala. Um, he said, put a blockchain in a government and then you won't have any leakage. You'll have the representations of value moving around and you could even have someone in control. But if they're attempting to fiddle with that database, it's going to be very transparent when they do. So you could have a public government accounting database that works with the blockchain. You wouldn't want that to be fully decentralized. What you'd want it to do is rest in the hands of, of a particular entity and then have people watch it and see what they're doing with the funds that move in and out. Well, I was going to say the reality is that you don't actually need a totally decentralized system for all applications. That's the point. There's been the assumption that uh, you, uh, because of where Bitcoin comes from and effectively most of the, the the crypto revolution that's followed from from bitcoin there's the assumption that total decentralization is um is valid in all cases and the point is i think that it isn't necessarily valid in all cases and you guys have come up with something which addresses that particular um that particular area that doesn't need total decentralization you have a decentralized network but you don't necessarily have decentralized administration is that have i got that about right when i read about this the uh, the impression that i get or when i when i first read it was that this is really just about creating using the technology that bitcoin has brought on to create a a way to have distributed web apps is that, is that, that about that, that's that that's sort of the way that we've been describing it because that or at least initially our first applications are going to be web apps we're going to have a YouTube and an interactive marketplace however that extent you know you can extend the analogy if you can do a web app with it you can do any other kind of data as well which is kind of the point if you can do YouTube you can do a clearing system if you can do YouTube you can do data security and file storage if you can do YouTube you can do anything. And so, in, in effect, you can do DRM if you add a couple of other modules on top, for example, end-to-end -end encryption and messaging so that keys can get broadcast back and forth. So we're starting with the web apps, and that's to, as the proofs of concept. Because you know, as a startup, we've only been incorporated for like seven or eight months. We've hustled our asses in, in, in that time. But we've, you, know, you have to start somewhere. And you, know, you could go and say, right, well, we're going to design a clearing system. And isn't that great? And go up to Euroclear and say, hey, guys, here's a clearing system. Or go up and say, hey, guys, you know, Citibank, here's something for your, 
you know, here's something for your FX trading. And they'd go, great, you know, go away. We have a perfectly good system and we're not going to let a startup that's less than a year old start fiddling with our software stack. So for us, it was about demonstrating the wider utility. And it, this, you know, it's an open source project. It's designed for people to use for their own applications. So for us, it's designed to make, we want to make something people can see and then go, you know, damn, I didn't know you could do that with a blockchain. That's really interesting. So that then they can take their own ideas, fork, hack, pull request, and off they go to the races, building stuff of their own, which is designed to utilize the distributed internet to scale their applications um, and challenge existing providers. I mean, you know, why not do a distributed Uber for a particular locality? If you can script it and all profits go to charity, Uber has some PR problems. If someone wanted to build that and do something along those lines and then create a challenger entity to Uber in a particular city by working with the state, and you know, they could do it if they wanted to. The point is we want to allow developers to exercise their utility and control rather than sort of forcing them to build on top of other platforms. Um, you know, other platforms, Bitcoin and Ethereum in particular, are going to be very useful going forward for this kind of stuff. Ethereum, um, we you know we will know and love it, and it's gonna we're sure it's going to be great. But it, you know, for us, it's checkpointing and security and and hashing things into into a, a central chain which has a, a different trust profile that will be useful for many applications. However, for running application logic, it's this distributed application where you have you know it's free to the end user to use. And the cost is on the person deploying it in terms of making sure that they have the adequate server capacity or computing capacity, doesn't necessarily need to be server capacity, to roll that application and distribute the logic. Right. And, and I, want, I want to get into some of the more practical aspects of this. So there are different components to what you guys are proposing. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of server component, uh, which I guess would also be the, the view component uh, to like your web browser or an equivalent yep. to the web browser. There's a blockchain. Uh, there's also some sort of a framework for generating contracts and a package manager. Yep. So we'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do that, we'd like to talk about uh, our sponsor, Shapeshift. So Shapeshift, as many of you know, is uh, the fastest and easiest way to buy and sell uh, altcoins. Um, you know, if you want to buy altcoins today, uh, I mean, before Shapeshift existed, really, it was quite cumbersome. You know, you had to find a replicable exchange uh, that supports the uh, coin that you want to buy or sell. You've got to create an account, uh, give them some personal information sometimes, and uh, place an order, wait for the order to be fulfilled. It's just a long and cumbersome and it's just like not very uh, streamlined process. And then Shapeshift comes along and just makes all that completely useless. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're the, the best way to, I mean, why would you use an altcoin exchange now that you have Shapeshift that you could just, you know, buy and sell your, your coins uh, instantly? So let's, uh, let's show you how this works. So when you go to Shapeshift.io, uh, you've got essentially what is uh, Google Translate for cryptocurrencies. And uh, well, on one side, uh, you let's have get the some doge. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, Preston, do you address. have an address? If, if you're really quick, it can be go to you. Sweet. Um, no, it's it's all right. I don't actually have my wallet on this computer. This is uh, this is my office computer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All, all my all my serious stuff I leave at home. So <laughs> Doge included. Okay. So on one side you have the currency you want to convert. The other side you have the currency you want to convert to. In this case, Doge. So let's uh, Brian put your address and put uh, one thousand Doge in the amount or or not. It doesn't matter. Uh, and then you just send. The bitcoins, or in this case, bitcoins, but it could be Litecoin for Doge. It could be new bits for 
for pure coin, it could be whatever you want. Uh, we're, we've been using simple examples here, but uh, you know, you, you can. The, the possibilities are endless, and then so you just need to scan that QR code, send uh, the currency that you you want to convert to the address. Have you sent it? Yeah, I just sent it now. Had to pay. All right, so pull up my uh, ah, and there it is. There you go. So it's a waiting exchange. So they support. Bitcoin, Litecoin, Purecoin, Darkcoin, Dogecoin, Namecoin, NXT, Feathercoin, Blackcoin, Bitcoin Dark, Quark, uh, Redcoin, and Newbits. So just like, I, I'm not really good at doing math on top of my head, but think of all the possibilities there. You could do Darkcoin for Namecoin, NXT for Feathercoin, Blackcoin for Quark, or Bitcoin for <laughs> Dogecoin. You know, I, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And there you go. So in, uh, in about 20 seconds, uh, the order was fulfilled. I've received Dogecoin on my wallet. I don't know how many I've got there, but I'm sure I can send lots of Reddit tips. 1,655. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's just hope for that Dogecoin price to go off, eh? Um, yeah, so great tool. It, it, you know, it's the fastest and easiest way to buy and sell uh, altcoins. And uh, they only take a small fee. Which is included in the price uh, when you're when you're uh, sending your currency. So go to shapeshift.io, give it a, give it a try. Tell us what you think. We haven't gotten any feedback yet. We we'd love to hear uh, what you think about it, and we'd like to thank Shapeshift for their support of every cent of Bitcoin. And and the reason everybody's been smiling is because uh, Preston is a well known supporter of uh, Dogecoin in favor of any other coin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it really is the future of money. I mean, I see a future. I see a future where walking through uh, Kibera and 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 you see the little the little smiley face, that little Shiba Inu staring back at you. Yeah. I see that in my dreams, and so that that I think is really the future. No, I mean, I, I don't think any of us would disagree with those being the future of cryptocurrencies. Uh. <laughs> so just uh, to sort of introduce this topic. There, there are four components to Eris, uh, and I think if if you're a web developer and you read these white papers that uh, you, you guys have put out on your website, um, you, you really get it. I mean, the, the D-server, for me, the D-server part was, was pretty uh, straightforward when, when I first read it. Uh, it. It's the components which allows you to create web apps, uh, web-style, data-driven, distributed apps, as you, uh, as you call them. And there's a browser component to that as well. So the question that always came to my mind when thinking about how are we going to create this decentralized internet uh, was like, how do you integrate that into like a technology that we all know and use, which is you know, open to web technologies like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, if you don't have a browser and you guys are solving that. And others are solving it too, uh, I mean, like, like Ethereum um, with Mist. and like yep. OpenBazaar, yeah, with Mist. Um, but uh, so this is sort of a clever way to solve that problem is to integrate a browser. Yeah, I mean, so there, there in any blockchain implementation, there, you know, there or any blockchain application, there are two halves to the software. You have the protocol and the chain itself, and then you have the implementation in the client. So if you're dealing with something like Dogecoin, um, the future of money, and there you will have the blockchain and the protocol which is distributed, and then you'll have the client which is designed to match up to that protocol. If you want to make changes to the protocol, you have to change, you know, substantial changes. You have to change the implementation in the client. What we did is we said, well, what Ethereum's done is they've got this very flexible and capable blockchain design. So if we have a distributed component, which is the blockchain, and then we move a lot of those consensus parameters into a VM, which is on the client side, 
And we structure it in such a way that what the blockchain is telling the, that particular VM to display through a web browser at local, displayed at localhost is something which looks like a web page. Then you've got an application that looks like a web page. Um, now, the way that we've done that is through something which is called the D server. So if you imagine the blockchain as, as the database backend, the D server displays all of the information and then allows a Thelonious blockchain to go talk to other protocols. So what it does, we started out and we have a Bitcoin module, an Ethereum POC7 module, and an IPFS module. So you can currently write a dApp on a Thelonious chain, which talks to Bitcoin and talks to Ethereum and talks to IPFS. And this happens through the D server, is that right? This happens through the D server, correct. So what you, the, the technical details... Um, you know, I'm more on legal structuring than, than the actual technical stuff, but we can, we can always get Casey or, or Ethan or one of the guys to talk about this sort of deep dive on a later date. But what the D server allows you to do is to, is to talk to multiple protocols in the context of a single app. So if you've got a distributed YouTube and the distributed YouTube we're building, for example, has a Bitcoin content incentivization function. So a user will have a Bitcoin key pair, which they, which they upload into their particular uh, client program. They'll have, you know, the IPFS will store all of the data. Bolonius will tell them what they're able to see. There will be magnet links, for example, to BitTorrent is one thing we used with Eris 0.1. And all of that then displays in a consistent application. And when the user sends a command to Bolonius and says, well, I want to watch this video, if they're not allowed to do it as, as put by the poster of the video, then they're not going to see it. If they don't have access to that information, then the information is not going to display on their screen. So much in the same way, it requires more design work, Thelonious, than other blockchains. It's not something which you just roll and then all of a sudden it's designed to solve a problem. It's a framework for you to put scripts in and put functionality in, which you then will know will only execute on the, on the provision of the relevant private key by the relevant user who you've authorized to access that information or, or write on the database in respect of the particular function that that contract governs. With this YouTube example, right, you mentioned Ethereum and then it is, this is a sort of, um, you know, a fork of Ethereum, you could say. Um, when, when would you... Do we don't this? like to use the word, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the advantage of doing something like this decentralized YouTube on top of Ethereum versus what you guys are doing? Or the, where's the balance here or the trade-off? The, the trade-off is a cost trade-off. So if you do something on Ethereum, uh, so our original Eris dApp cost 250,000 gas just to deploy. And the other problem was the thing was huge. So you might not be able to get it onto a single block. The way that we've structured Thelonious is that most of the dApp logic goes into the Genesis block. And then it's up to the developer to decide what parameters they want to set in terms of monetization. So if I, if I can sort of rephrase that or like um, interpret how I see that, right? So... The, the reason why it would be hugely expensive with Ethereum is because you have the security of the entire Ethereum network. I mean, okay, it doesn't exist yet, but you will of the, the future Ethereum network uh, securing uh, that application. But in some cases, that makes no sense, right? If, if, the, the central, if this YouTube is run by a company that you sort of trust anyway, then the idea is that you can do something um, with a, a different security model, different consensus model is much, much cheaper, um, but it has a similar architecture. Is that correct? More or less. I mean, let's, you know, one example I use is, is if you're looking at a financial platform, so let's look at an Ethereum-based financial platform versus a bank-deployed financial platform. An Ethereum-based financial platform has to contend with every user of the system being mutually untrustworthy. A bank-deployed 
system, however, can be designed so that you can have administrative control. I mean, you can secure these chains without mining. That's that's an important. But component. couldn't you do this in an Ethereum contract as well? You could, but it would cost money. So what you do with it would cost money to run all of the computation. Yeah. So with a Thelonious with a Thelonious chain, you can structure it. Our default gas price is zero, and the reason you can get away with that is because you simply just say in the Genesis block, well. The only people who are able to write to this database are people who the administrator has pre-authorized. So if you're a bank and you're running a bank platform, when someone attempts to make an API call to a contract on your blockchain and they haven't got a, you know, they either haven't got a key pair or they're trying to spam it with some other sort of things, the contract is just going to bounce off because it'll say, well, you don't have the permissions to write, so you know, go to hell. The idea is that when you have an application which is controlled by an entity, yes, you have an attack vector which in the form of the private keys which control the chain. However, you are allowing you're deploying a blockchain which is designed to protect your users from the rest of the world but not you, instead of a blockchain which is designed to protect everyone including you from everybody else. And in most commercial contexts that's not what that's not what is required. I mean, if if trust were that big of a problem in everyday life, then we would be seeing blockchains everywhere. Bitcoin would have solved, you know, the, the commercial problem. And it, in fact, frankly, the opposite is true. In most commercial relations, you need to have third parties involved in order to make certain discretionary assessments as to whether facts have occurred or what the meaning of a provision was, or even to constitute an asset itself. So instead, it's not, this isn't a technical detail, you know, oh, well, we have someone administering it. When you have someone administering something, you suddenly have accountability. You have a legal nexus, which allows you to deal in legal obligations. And that's something which Bitcoin doesn't have. So, you know, you're dealing with a distributed ledger, but a distributed ledger does not have agency and it doesn't have legal personality. So it's going to be very hard to actually structure in legal obligations on a distributed ledger where something that's broken cannot be fixed or cannot be unwound or cannot be undone. And so, you know, people say, well, maybe we don't want them undone. But the fact is, in mainstream finance, undoing transactions and amending transactions, um, quite without the consent of the parties involved in some cases, is something which happens all the time. So we've structured this blockchain system from a financial perspective to deal with those considerations. Um, and, and it was something we looked at the distributed, you know, when I was a lawyer, um, this is a problem I identified. How can you work with a system that you can't fix in the event of a misrepresentation or a fraud or a simple mistake. Um, you know, no one is going to use that system. If you have one system, and this is a this is a simple question of competition. If you have a system which protects your rights and is slightly expensive, and one that doesn't protect your rights and is free of charge or has a different cost structure, the rights themselves are very valuable. And I suspect most people will go for the system that structures in their rights. That, that's my own my own particular view on that. Okay. Um I recently saw a tweet by Peter Todd, uh, and it said something like that. So the only advantage of Bitcoin, and I think he talked about, you know, cryptocurrencies uh, sort of as a class, is a decentralization. Now, it seems here that you're sort of taking the blockchain side, but then getting rid to decentralization, I guess, to varying degrees, right? In some cases, maybe not at all, but in other cases, completely. Um, how does that make sense? Because you can spread your data out without necessarily having to have it. Redundancy is built in and security is built in. So blockchain security can be achieved in, in several dozen lines of code. What would require servers and IT administrators. I mean, this is what Bitcoin has proven. You can deploy a database which secures itself very, very simply and very elegantly in very few lines of code. So whereas currently we require oversight and administrators to do that. So by relying on mathematics 
instead of people and oversight, you're reducing a cost. Additionally, the data itself, fault tolerance is very, very high. If you're running 100 nodes, you know, one example I use, if you, let's say you're an international bank, right? I always refer to banking, I apologize. Let's say you're some kind of organization and you run a blockchain or a series of blockchains to administer your functions. Um, and one of your offices, suddenly out of nowhere, an asteroid falls out of a clear blue sky and wipes your New York headquarters off the map. Well, if you're running nodes in 10 other countries that have redundant copies of the same data, then you know, let's say it happens at night, so all your people are at home. The following day, they just walk in download a software program, plug in their private key, and they're up and running just as, you know, completely uninterrupted because that data store has continued to administer itself without, you know, it's continued to administer itself by virtue of the way that it's structured. So redundancy and fault tolerance is extremely high. That's valuable. Currently, these companies need to use data centers offshore, three, four, five of them per corporate, very expensive to administer. Um, and that, that's a cost and it's a very significant cost. So from our perspective, if you can just build that into a system and have it run quietly and automatically in the background, that's a substantial advantage uh, that these systems will have over existing data structures. And now here's a thought that makes it difficult for, uh, uh, for the purists. Here's a, here's a product by the sound of it that is going to be very attractive to um, existing mainstream banks to implement blockchain technology to do some of the work that they they currently do uh, more cost effectively potentially reducing the cost for those customers um, if that happens we're likely to see um, a greater mass adoption of crypto indirectly than directly so we're going to see people using the blockchain, even though they don't realize they're using the blockchain. Perhaps they don't feel the confidence to use the blockchain or to use crypto technology right now. They don't trust the, the trustlessness of it. Um, but in, uh, indirectly, they may end up, many more people may be using the blockchain uh, than would otherwise have been the case if uh, they have the direct option of participating in um, uh, directly in, in in Bitcoin and other uh, and other currencies, interesting thought. Mass adoption by the back door. That that's exactly the point. I mean, the re another reason we're going with web apps is to show that you can use a blockchain without knowing you're using it. Because if you if you have to know you're using it. You know, I, you know, I'm not that, you know, that computer literate. If I had to go in and, and run everything from the command line in order to use it, I probably wouldn't, as would 99% you know, of the population. So the idea is that you have a data structure which brings all of these principles into a mainstream application um, without anyone needing to have the technical capacity to, you know, to do so. So, I mean, there's a guy named uh, Jawad Yaqub who's developed a, a distributed desktop which has some blockchain components called Dios. And his thesis is... You know, you have a desktop which uses the blockchain to secure certain functions and people see a desktop. And it's the same thing with Eris. People have an interactive application and they see an interactive application. They do not see the blockchain. It runs in the background. Um, and, you know, you know to, Ethereum, to Ethereum's great credit, none of this really would have been possible without certain of the structures, particularly the Patricia Merkle tree, which they innovated um, as part of their open source project. So, it, you know, this, this is where we see the space is going and... Um, you know, entirely because of the open source model is according, you know, and following that we've open sourced all of our stuff as well. Okay. Um, 
so assuming you know this uh, finds you know it works out. There's a lot of um, a lot of developers start using it, developing applications like that. Uh, what would the impact of that be? Like, how would that change the way uh, people interact with applications? And uh, in particular, also from a sort of business model perspective, do you think that will change the way uh, maybe monetization works as well? I think that yes. I mean. It, in terms of what how the structure of the internet might change um, if this technology were widely used, is that you would have users voluntarily, um, it, users would not necessarily use an application because it was convenient. They would also use it for other things, like this particular developer respects my privacy. And there would be transparency as to what a developer could do with user data. Um, so if you had a, a series of distributed social networks or Twitters or Reddits or God knows what else, and a developer said, well, this is incentivized to do this, and we're not going to shove advertising in your face. That's something which I think people would find valuable, and they may migrate over to those systems. And as a result of which, it would be an order of magnitude harder for corporates to sell that data um, or do any meaningful sales of that data, and also for governments to observe that data um, without authorization or user consent. But that's some, And it would be transparent if the application changed over time. Um, how the developer was actually, you know, what the developer was doing. So, so the difference here, right? Because today someone could go and start an alternative social network and say, we're not going to do any advertising. And, and of course people have done that, right? But so the difference here would be that it would be uh, visible for everyone in the blockchain, what they actually are able to do. Consent would become more transparent. I mean, if, if you structure a blockchain, um, so that people can't see your data um, and that at a later date they would not be able to change it as to make that data readable, then yeah, you would have a, an application where you, know, you, you cannot uh, reverse that kind of consent. And so that, that potentially has, that could disrupt a lot of business models in that you don't need advertising anymore to run an application. Your users use it simply because of the convenience. Um, and let's say when you're opening the window, anytime the window's open, you start processing transactions. That's something where I think it'll have a, a very substantial impact. Um, and in another sense, you know, one thing, you know, version control in GitHub, I think I may have mentioned this earlier, so apologies if I'm repeating myself. But we're, you know, we run a startup and we have to pay all manner of service providers, third-party service providers for the things we use. One of those is a private GitHub repo. If you can script version, version control, and we are working on that, and then have a distributed GitHub app you know, DAP that you and your company run, all of a sudden that cost falls away. So you're dealing with protocols governing the way that people interact instead of servers, which everybody's always querying, which hold all their data off site and frankly expose you to those servers. So people will have a lot more control over the risks to which they're exposed because they're going to be able to move those risks in house and then distribute them in such a way that they're able to mitigate them to a significant extent. So from, you know, there will be other considerations, private key, you know, private key management is going to be a very big one. Um, but we think that that's, that's the direction things are going. In terms of the business model, um, it's a free software model where services, we think that there's going to be a very big market for these services going forward, um, distributed database management. And so we would like to be the provider of those services. Um, and um, yeah, because that, that's how business works. So it's, we can't patent this stuff anyway because of prior art and um, because no one would frankly use it because you, it has to be open source if it's going to be secure. Another Peter Todd line, nothing that, uh, you know, nothing that uh, isn't secure, you know, isn't open source or everything that is secure is rather. So because people are able to assess it, test it, you know, take pot shots at it and, that's, and use it for whatever purpose they want. And, um, and for us, that's really important. So yeah, it's a free software model. We, you know, we we think that 
skilled labor in this space is, is very, very thin on the ground. And we would like to be the skilled labor that, um, that helps to you know, bring blockchains into wider use. So I'd like to come back to the, to the, the browser for a second. So I, I think that the browser is an important, an important component to sort of user adoption and consumer adoption and, and bring just regular people on like, um, but there, there is sort of a, a, a problem with that as more and more of these blockchain technologies start issuing browsers um, is that you have this, uh, uh, this, you know, you have multiple browsers that aren't necessarily compatible with each other and which require users to have multiple, well, you know, multiple browsers installed on their systems if they want to be able to do anything. And if we sort of look back in history, this does resemble a little bit, you know, the early internet in the early 90s where you had uh, AOL and Netscape and each had their own protocol implementations and each had their own websites and each had their own even like HTML implementation standard. How do you think this will evolve? How will we overcome this? Will, you know, are we expecting, can we expect like browsers like, uh, like Google Chrome and Firefox to start implementing uh, these protocols, or are we waiting for a new generation of browsers to, to emerge from this? I mean, really, really what we've built, we, we use Chromium for, for, the, for the D server. So it, it actually is, it's a Google Chrome browser that, that works best with it. And, and so our approach is that you can take a module wrapper for any of the other protocols, plug it into the D server, and then your standard Google, Google Chrome web browser will be able to display whatever that module wrapper has been written for. And you just access it through the VM at localhost. So it's not like we built our own browser from scratch. We use Chrome, um, normal, ordinary web browser. But the D server, which is sitting behind it, allows that normal web browser to go talk to all of those other protocols. So the D server is displaying the DAP um, through Chrome or another web browser and then the D server is what sits underneath it. So we can talk to Ethereum, Bitcoin, counterpart. I mean, we're really big on, on cross-platform interoperability. And so... But, but your browser has to... Ha you have to have, a, have implemented those protocols in order for your browser to be compatible with it. You have to have written the module wrapper for the D server. Right. In order... Okay. And, then, and then have a DAP, which... So the application will need to be able to talk to all of the various APIs for the different protocols. And if that happens, then you can put them through a regular web browser. So we haven't built, the D server is the web browser, but it's in only in the sense that it displays through a normal web browser. It's not a standalone browser. Um, so yes, it's possible that, that you know, Google or Firefox or someone else could create a D server button. And then you could have your D server button, which allows you to go and do various other things. At the moment, you don't even need to do that. You just go localhost 3000 and hey presto, your dApps, your, you get your D server administrator screen, and then your dApps are in a, in a little box on the side. So that for us is, you know, we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And it can talk to all of these other protocols just, you know, through stuff that most people already have on their computer. Okay. Well, it seems to me like, like probably the next uh, logical step is to create some sort of a standard protocol um, I mean, I don't know what the equivalent would be in the in the traditional web world, but a standard protocol that uh, every browser manufacturer would implement and which would be able to talk to just about any uh, any protocol. I mean, it, from our we've talked to it, the, all the protocols are different, so you can't have a standard protocol for protocols. I, I mean, or you could, but I think that would involve a lot of developer teams. Um, saying, well, giving up on their visions of the way things should work. And so the, the D server is designed to let them 
and the way that they think their protocol should be structured, then create something which allows the D server to talk to their protocol as they envision it and as they wish it to be. Um, I, I don't think that moving to a standard, just in the same way that we don't have a standard cryptocurrency, we're not going to have a standard DAP, but we have to have a way that those DAPs can communicate with each other on, in a uniform way. And so the important thing, you know, Thelonious is a protocol design. It is not a protocol itself. It can be changed by the developers um, if they choose. They can set any consensus parameters they want. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping to have variety in the kind of opcodes that are available in the VM. This is something where we want it to be as open as possible, so that, but it, it requires work. You, know, you need to actually do the work, write the module wrapper, and then write the DAP, which is designed to plug one protocol you know, counterparty into Ethereum or Bitcoin into Dogecoin. So it, we don't want to tell people how their protocols are supposed to look. We want to give them a way that they can plug their protocols into other things and develop applications which are free to use, which leverage the utility of all of these separate protocols. And this includes BitTorrent, IPFS, you know, uh, distributed file stores as well. Um, so Preston, one of the things, and, and I think this also partially comes from your background as a lawyer, uh, that you guys have seemed to emphasize a lot is uh, the legal side, right? So uh, integrating the legal system. Um, so first of all, what's what's your view currently of the decentralized app space uh, from sort of legal uh, standpoint? And how do you think decentralized apps would be implemented or let's put it. so yeah first of all what's your view of decentralized app space from a legal perspective and second of all um the crowdfunding aspect and having its own token is like very central to decentralized apps so would that sort of thing also be built on top of um on top of iris I think we'll start with the second question before we go to the first, um, because it's a simpler answer. Um, personally, and we have different opinions on this in Eris Industries, I'm personally not legally comfortable with the crowdfunding model um, for a lot of the reasons that there's very few critics of that model have in that you're selling a what is effectively, um, you know, you're selling something to people who are not sophisticated investors um, in a very high risk environment. And quite irrespective of, of the legal niceties of, of that approach, I don't think it's a wise approach. So it remains to be seen what will happen to startups that have followed that model. But I think that the more appropriate way to do it is to have an app which is free to your users, where you secure private funding that knows the risk they're getting involved in. From a legal perspective, more, you know, more generally, um, I think a lot of the space is looking at a legal problem, which is asset transfer, because assets only have existence in the eyes of the law. Um, there are legal concepts which depend on how they were created and how they came into the hands of the person who is then trading them. So, and this is especially true in finance. And I think that a lot of engineering solutions um, have been proposed, which rely on the base premise that you have a token of some kind, which is of non-zero value, for, for example, Bitcoin. And then what you do is you can replicate um, the economic substance of one of these transactions while disintermediating a third-party provider. The fact is there's a very easy, there, there's a risk to that, which is that any user who does that, so you know, let's say on the one hand you have dollars and on the other hand you have gold, and you set up all of this computing architecture around it and then put a token in the middle, which is designed to replicate these assets and then mediate the trade with some price feeds and God knows what else. Um, you are actually exposed to movements in all three of the prices, whereas if you simply have a bilateral peer-to-peer -peer trade in the real asset itself, then you're only exposed to the movements in the one. 
um, or over the life of the transaction if it's something like a derivative movements in two. So it, it's it's using uh, it's using something which is actually very easily circumvented by simply having an enforceable claim, um, which requires the possibility of enforcement, which requires a third party administrator of the database in question in order to give effect to that enforcement. So it, it's you know this isn't a technical thing. It's it's not a com- it's not a computing problem that can be solved. It's a legal structuring issue. And if you're going to structure it correctly, you have to have the third party who can step in and amend that transaction on, on the provision of a court order. So that, that's why we took that approach. It's not something where we're like, yeah, we think decentralization is this and decentralization is that. It's a simple legal technical issue, which is that if you're going to have an asset, you need to have some kind of enforcement mechanism um, to deal with the full complexity of what that asset represents. A token is maybe a representation of something. But in most cases, let's say you're dealing with a debt obligation, you want to move that around on a blockchain. Debt obligations are hundreds, if not thousands of pages of paper worth of representations and obligations. They're tremendously complex. The placement of a comma um, or A or V, one word in the wrong place, can change the way you interpret very significant um, parts of that obligation. And you have two, you know, there are two options. Either you try to script it all, which no one has yet done and I think would, would be not worth the effort. Or you simply script the payment mechanics, use the blockchain as the, as the mechanism which renders that transaction more efficient from a cost perspective, and then you incorporate all of the legal control that you need by having a third-party administrator who sits outside of the transaction but has the ability to amend the database. So this is, this is the, why we took that approach. Um, it, you know, it's a, simple, it's a simple question of how things currently work. It's how it works and how it fits within um, a current legal uh, framework. So if you want to take advantage of, um, uh, of of being able to enforce your rights, then you need to operate a system that works within the current legal system. And clearly what you've come up with here makes that possible. Um, if you don't care about that and you just want to trust the trustless world, then you don't need what you've come up with. You can do it by one of the existing methods. And really the decision here is is. Um, you know, uh, do you want to take advantage of the legal system if things go wrong? I think that's what it boils down to. I mean, there's some things like Micron's Lighthouse, which are that's perfect for decentralization. You can see the code, you can inspect it. You know that if that particular you know crowd fund, and that's not a crowd sale, that's a crowd fund where it's by donation. If that particular project for the or improvement uh, on the Bitcoin Core protocol, if it crosses a certain threshold, the funds will move. And that's okay, because for that kind of a transaction, you're dealing with a very simple, straight, absolute disposal. Um, if you're dealing with something where obligations start going multiple directions, and you have 12, 15, you know, 100 parties to a transaction, however many, and each, of the con- each set of obligations between them may be materially different, then you have something which is so complex that if you want to code it, you can, but I don't see why you'd want to. So it's, you know... It, it would just, you know, these transactions without quite apart from, um, quite apart from having to translate all this stuff into code, negotiating one of these deals can take a year or two years. So you can imagine what creating a, a, a coded framework for them would take in terms of labor power. And you're talking about teams of people, you know, 10 lawyers per, per, rep, per uh, transaction party and 10 transaction parties per transaction. This is very complex stuff. So the way that you simply deal with that is by leaving the law pretty much as it is incorporating the law into the transaction and then using the blockchain as the mechanism which carries out payment mechanics and other things which are very entitled even 
is very easy to quantify. Um, in England, we have a we have a title database, which is which is you know, a central database of title. It's not going to be hard to reduce all of those categories to particular number. You know, every title has a number. So people who say, well, we've got to quantify title, this has actually already been done um, in a centralized context. The question for us is how do we use a distributed data store to make that process more efficient and more effective? And it extends to other types of functions, you know, querying health records, that perfect application where you would want to have a database that anyone can access, but you want a very simple security logic so that only certain people can access certain records. I mean, that it, a blockchain is perfect for that, tied in with end-to-end encryption and a distributed data store. Multiple redundant, automatic, requires no oversight, like, great, super, go for it. And so it's that kind of economy where you're going to see a blockchain being very effective. Um, so, so from our perspective, that's, that's how we look at it. Well, if you want to learn more about... Uh Aris Industries and what you guys are doing, you can go to arisindustries.com. And what I really like about what you've done is you've actually set up uh, separate domain names for all the components. So it's really easy for a developer to come in and and read the white paper. And actually there's tutorials, documentation. So I mean- A lot of blog posts too. Yeah, and very interesting blog posts as well. I'm actually gonna, I mean, I've, I've got some development skills, so I, I may look into this and maybe try to write something. Casey is gonna, Casey is gonna love what you just said because we had a substantial discussion in the 24 hours at the launch. You know, how many brands are we launching, Casey? No, Preston, it makes sense. This is how developers think. No, no, but I love this. So. I love how you've done this, and I think right. it's really clear. And especially what's really important is like the tutorials, right? Like, you know, copy this line into your into your uh, terminal, and so yeah, that's really great. Uh, just before we wrap up, there's one article that you wrote. So you've, uh, Aris Industries has a blog called uh, Doing Business Distributed or doing distributed business rather. And you wrote an article called Blockchain Your Business in Just Seven Steps, which is sort of like, a, you know, you've got a traditional business. Let's turn it into a blockchain business. Here are the seven steps you need to go through. Could you just kind of walk us through those uh, real quick? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I basically this blog post is designed to get people, uh, you know, being a business, we have to get people thinking the way we do. So, so this was designed to do that. I'm attempting to brainwash everybody. Um, on this hangout into thinking about the world the way I do. But basically, the the overarching theme is that blockchain isn't a, a one-size-fits-all solution. It's Bitcoin itself is not a one-size-fits-all solution to your problems. A blockchain is a database. Um, smart contracts, um, in, or rather, ADAPT is an application, um, an interactive application. And if you want to make use of these things, you have to adopt a developer culture and, and, and you need to start thinking about how you design interactive applications using these databases. So step one is reassess the landscape. And that basically is what we've been discussing on, on legal obligations and thinking in terms of distributed rather than fully decentralized. Um, step two, redefining the problem. Um, again, Thelonious, uh, which is our blockchain design, can do some pretty interesting stuff. One of those things is uh, you can secure it without mining, which means it's very inexpensive to secure um, and the other thing is that you can control it. So you're not exposed to regulatory or operational risk. And in addition to that, you can amend the application over time. It can change its parameters without a hard fork. Um, and getting that into people's heads, they go, really, what, you, you can do that? Yes, you can, smart contracts allow it. So if you assume that you can amend an application, you can control an application, you can secure it very cheaply, then start thinking about the other kinds of things you can do now that you've got one of these databases in your hands. Um, putting the user first, um, this is really about making sure that the users have a consistent um, and free-to-use internet exper- you know, interactive experience. Um, we haven't built a cryptocurrency. Um, the internet, as it works today, you know, all of you know, Google Hangouts, what we're using right now, is free if, to us, um, and it costs money for Google. So in order for applications to be economically viable, they will have to continue to be free. 
And that's what Eris allows. There is some cost somewhere because a blockchain isn't a perpetual motion machine, but you know that that cost will be borne by the developer, and ideally, it will be much lower than than those costs are currently. Um, step four, uh, we've open sourced it. It's free software. Fork, hack, do whatever you want. Um, that's the way it should be. Five, um, this is really as a result of feedback with financial institutions and. Uh, and, and other corporates in that they're not resourcing their development arms enough. They've got developers, but they aren't giving them a mandate to actually go and develop and do some interesting stuff. But in order to really leverage this technology, you know, people say, so what, what can you give us, Eris? And we say, well, we can give you a database. And they go, great, so what, what will it do? And you go, well, that's something which you as an organization need to decide. It's up to you to figure out where your pain points are. We don't know them. You do. And then get your developers on this and actually have your developers solve those pain points with an automatic database. So, you know, people aren't thinking of it in those terms. But now that they have a blockchain they can control, that, that's really how they need to start thinking. Um, step six, join the open source movement and save the world. That's... Um, you know, that's the point where earlier we were saying, you know, the difference between a Bitcoin, um, you know, credit union in a developing country and an actual credit union in a developing country, you know, a legal obligation can be transferred over a blockchain. And if you can get inexpensive market infrastructure into places that don't have it, um, then what you're doing is you're using the blockchain, you're not relying on tokens in order to do it, there is a cost, that cost will be lower. Um, and finally, dive on in, the water's great, um, you know, that pretty self-explanatory. Um, we have a Skype channel where we're Eris Industries on Freenode. We've got a subreddit, our Eris Industries, and um, and yeah, and, and it's a it's an open source project. And you know, the more the merrier, as far as we're concerned. Um, you know, this is something which we build. You know. These steps do they follow uh, David Johnson's uh, DAP uh, framework? Do they? I haven't read it. Mm, oh, no, it, well, it definitely maybe don't. you should. <laughs> it is a definitive framework for building DApps. So it, perhaps there, there are some amendments that uh, need to be done to this, uh, this list of steps. I think it's just, oh. uh, <laughs> no, it's definitely a different model, right? Because uh, the David Johnson DApp model, the, the whole tokenization is super key. And, you know, he says like, oh, so, so I think it's a very different model. But, uh, but this is very interesting. And I think... So we will put a link to this article also in the show notes. And um, I, personally, I am very excited to see kind of the first project because it's, and, and hopefully people actually uh, developing applications on this soon. And, and if we actually, you know, if he's, particularly if we will see applications running on Aries, we'll see applications running on Ethereum soon. I think that'll be uh, fantastic to see. And uh, I hope you guys are going to be successful with that. We're really interested to see what, I mean, the Eris Ethereum connection, um, you know, there's, there's no denying it. And we're really interested to see how an Eris DAP and an Ethereum DAP, or, or rather Ethereum, the, the protocol, are going to work together and what kind of added security in particular that can provide for an Eris DAP that's used for something. So it, it's, it is going to be interesting to see, you know, it's very early days. We've only been around for two and a half weeks, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, so, you know, but, uh, but, but it should be, you know, it should be a really exciting year. And we're really looking forward to working with everyone from the various, uh, various distributed protocols on how we can make dApps that make their protocols more valuable and more useful. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in that, you know, please uh, check out the website, uh, get in touch with them. And uh, so thanks so much for joining us today. Also, Sean, uh, thank, thank you uh, for joining us today, you know, giving us an update. We didn't have so much time to talk. Uh, you didn't have so much time to talk, but I'm sure we'll have you back on uh, you know, maybe when this bit of license thing is out, or, or definitely when the sort of definite version of the bit of license thing is out, we'll definitely have to do a full episode on that. Look forward to it.
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if you so next week coming up, we're gonna have Tim Swanson on uh, to talk about. I don't know. He sent us like a list of forty things we could talk about. So I'm gonna have to like <laughs> dive through and figure out. We're gonna have to figure out which ones we should cover. Uh, so, but I think it will be a great episode, and we've been wanting to have him on for a while. Um, so, if you if you like the show, you know, please help us out. You know, leave us an iTunes review that helps new people uh, support uh, find the show. If you watch this by video, subscribe to us uh, on YouTube, and then you will also get updates. We're coming up on 300 subscribers. Yeah, you will update for the live episodes as well. And of course, you can always uh, give us a donation either on episodebeacon.com um, slash tips or you know just do it in YouTube if you're watching there. So thanks so much. I look forward to being back next week. Thanks, guys.